Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So let's start tonight with the latest from NASA on what they're now calling UAPs or Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena and what the rest of us generally call UFOs. Now, you may also have heard that UAP stands for Unidentified Aerial Phenomena and you'd be right. Apparently, they have since changed the A in the acronym to anomalous. So, uh, of course, this just follows in a series of different names that have been given to these phenomena over the years. So, uh, you know, update your <laughs> compendiums to uh, unidentified anomalous phenomenon or phenomena. Um and I think that's probably uh, partially because there are things that uh, have supposedly happened in the oceans as well. So it's not just in the air that people are looking at. Now, of course, all of this was really in an attempt to move the work away from its sort of uh, sci-fi origins and its sort of mundane uh, ideas in pop culture into something that is more in the realm of actual science fact and can actually be studied without any of the sort of baggage and presuppositions that come from having been steeped in the world of sci-fi uh, ideas about aliens and UFOs. Now, the advisory board met on Wednesday to lay out their plans for moving forward with the report that they've been tasked to write on the spate of recent phenomena that have lit up the public consciousness. Now, uh, for all of those holding out hope that, quote, disclosure is coming, uh, this meeting was a dud. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's be perfectly honest. Um, those people are never going to be satisfied because there is no grand conspiracy. We have not been in contact with aliens since the 1950s. All of the things that they say that were developed through uh, reverse engineering alien technology were all created by human beings. Um, you know, it's just the continuation of this idea that is so pervasive amongst humans. It's very weird that people are always saying to themselves, well, I couldn't do that. So clearly no other human could do that. It's the same with ancient aliens. It's the same with the weird idea of Tartaria, uh, and the supposed mud flood, uh, which we haven't talked about, I don't think, very much on this program. Maybe someday. Uh, but it's just a wild conspiracy theory that, like, modern humans are way less capable of uh, doing the things that they do every day than they actually are. And so that's really fed into this idea about alien technology, is the idea that 
there was no way that we could have such leaps in technology as we have since the 1950s without realizing how much accumulated knowledge has built up in order for those leaps to happen. And that some of this is just the kind of natural progression that once you figured out some things, other things sort of fall into place. And so it's not some sort of conspiracy. It's not alien technology. It's just hardworking people doing a lot of hard work and a lot of unsung work. And uh, for lots of the female scientists, a lot of uh, not having their work uh, actually credited to them. So uh, <laughs> they they are the true uh, victims of alien uh, <laughs> conspiracies, are the women whose work has already almost certainly been stolen by men, uh, especially in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and even into today, uh, who are already not getting uh, any credit. And now you want to give the credit to aliens rather than humans. So uh, shame on those people. <laughs> so getting back to the actual uh, meeting, again, as I said, this is not disclosures. So uh, Dan Evans, the assistant deputy uh, Associate Administrator of NASA's Science Mission Directorate notes that I want to emphasize this loud and proud that there is absolutely no convincing evidence for extraterrestrial life associated with UAPs, period. <laughs> now, the four-hour meeting was live-streamed, and the upshot of the whole thing was that the data just isn't there, and that with all of the stigma Around the topic, it's hard to get good evidence and have people objectively report on what they're seeing. Panel Chairman David Spergel, a theoretical astrophysicist and an emeritus professor at Princeton University, noted that the panel's role was not to resolve the nature of these events, but was rather to create a better framework for analyzing and exploring the topic in the future. The panel was created in 2022 with 16 experts, including astronaut Scott Kelly, as well as experts from astronomy, spaceflight and aeronautics, physics, science communication, astrobiology, and public policy. NASA wrote in a press release when the team was formed that, quote, the independent study team will lay the groundwork for future study on the nature of UAPs for NASA and other organizations. To do this, the team will identify how data gathered by civilian government entities, commercial data, and data from other sources can potentially be analyzed to shed light on UAPs. It will then recommend a roadmap for potential UAP data analysis by the agency going forward. So again, this is not some sort of uh, disclosure panel. Now, the panel is actually unique in that it is a civilian panel, whereas other past investigations like the famous, uh, the, the really big two, uh, Project Blue Book and Project Grudge. Now, those were uh, military slash national security based endeavors. 
And so they had a very different purview. But of course, because of that, it's also means that the uh, new panel will only be able to deal with unclassified and civilian sightings. Now, one of the things that is was one of the most frustrating themes that emerged from the meeting was the lack of a meaningful rubric with which to proceed with their task. I think we're not looking for a needle in a haystack. We're looking for an anomaly in a haystack. We don't even know that we're looking for a needle, said Mike Gold, the executive vice president of civil space and external affairs at Redwire. I don't know what the phenomenology is that we're looking for. We say anomalous. What does that mean? Anomalous acceleration? I think as we try to look at the data, we're starting from an almost impossible position if we don't know what we're looking for. Is it a radiation signature? Is it something electromagnetic? Is it something like that? That's why this is so challenging and frustrating to me that we're talking about monitoring something that we don't even know what we're supposed to monitor. Now, others were more optimistic. Uh, They feel that using the scientific method and developing uh, new and novel approaches to observation could yield real benefits. But another major concern is the poor quality of the data. It really is true that most of the sightings are of misidentified mundane objects like the planet Venus, commercial aircraft, or distant headlights on elevated surfaces. For instance, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, director of the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office in the U.S. Department of Defense, presented a video of three objects that had been submitted as anomalous by an airplane pilot. It turns out they were simply commercial aircraft the pilot had thought would have been closer to their own airplane in the airspace. So based on the fact that they were further away, the lights didn't make sense to him and so uh, or them, and so they reported it as a possible UFO. Joshua Semeter of Boston University debunked the famous Go Fast video and showed that the object was actually traveling at just 40 miles per hour, which was the wind speed at that time. And so it turned out that the apparent speed was due to optical illusions, like parallax against the ocean. And so when you look at something like that, it looks really impressive until an actual scientist goes through it and says, actually, no, what you have here is simply an optical illusion. And that's, of course, a big thing that happens when people are just looking at things themselves. Um, not to mention the fact that this was, you know, in an interpretation of an interpretation because it was a uh, image from a FLIR camera. And so there was definitely a lot going on there. Um, and so Scott Kelly even recounted a tale of a time when a co-pilot of his uh, once mistook a Bart Simpson balloon for a UAP. 
And so that is clearly a great party tale, but it also shows just how hard it is to find any real information when most of what we have is explainable, but also then takes time to figure out. And so this detracts from time that might be spent looking at the few items that do seem to be truly anomalous. They also noted that in our current culture, spotting a UFO or UAP can often lead to ridicule and harassment. So if someone does see something truly anomalous, there's a good chance they won't actually report it to anyone who could then investigate it. So for instance, the armed forces have now said, if you see something, uh, you know, we want to know about it, but uh, commercial airliners are still, uh, commercial air pilots are still very wary to say anything about seeing anything because they're worried it will affect their job. And so, yeah, it's something that is still very much stigmatized in some of the places where you might want to find the best evidence. And so I think the panel definitely has an uphill battle in public perception, and in fact, in public perception overall, because skeptics will see it as a waste of time, uh, since most everything can be easily explained if you just take the time to figure out what it is. And You know, the true believers will see it as another attempt by NASA and the armed forces and the government with a capital G uh, to cover up the truth of alien intervention in our lives. And so you're never going to convince those people that this isn't a cover up of some kind. Um, You know, I've talked about conspiracy theories for many years and how it's really hard to uh, pull someone out of a conspiracy theory. It can be done. It's not hopeless, but it's really hard because anything that you try to give them as a counter is easily twisted in their minds as a sign that, oh, well, yes, that is a true thing because of this, that, or the other thing that they are then able to be able to slot into their conspiracy in order to uh, reinforce it rather than uh, put holes into it. And so, yeah, it's just, it's, it's real unfortunate, especially since a lot of people now believe in really dangerous conspiracies like that vaccines uh, are not one of the, if not the most uh, wonderful and uh, amazing inventions that humans have ever created and that you should get all the vaccines that you possibly can as soon as you can in life. Now, for my part on this phenomena, I think that while there may be some truly anomalous things out there, I think they're still most likely weird physical phenomena that we just don't understand yet. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that we do not know about the everyday world. And so, you know, we don't know 
there's still things we don't know about how charged particles interact in the upper atmosphere, for instance. So, you know, in the last five or 10 years, there have been, I think, three or four new kinds of phenomena like uh, sprites and is it Steve? I think it's Steve that is like the uh, weird thing that happens that's not the northern lights, but sort of happens around the same areas where you get the northern lights uh, and all sorts of things that like we didn't know about 10 years ago. And so I definitely think that can be partially explanatory of some of the true anomalies. And the other thing is we also have a lot to learn about how our brains process sensory information. So for instance, uh, there is a very popular hypothesis nowadays that infrasound can cause people to feel like their house is haunted. And so this is a real thing that we have tracked. People have done experiments now. And if you are able or if you're exposed to infrasound, you can get these feelings of being watched, that someone's in the room with you, all of this kind of stuff that's, you know, very relatable to feeling like a house is haunted. And so there may be a visual phenomena that causes people to see UAPs and we just don't know about it. There is so much we still don't know about the natural world, but that is natural. And so, uh, you know, the idea that there might be a visual phenomena uh, that is um, analogous to infrasound, I don't think that's any far f- less far-fetched uh, than people are actually, I think that's less far-fetched, I should say, than that people are actually seeing true signs of alien life. And so, you know, I hate to be a downer about this sort of thing because, you know, I think a lot of people feel really isolated by that. But I have to say, like, the vastness of space makes it virtually impossible unless we develop knowledge of a different kind of physics that will ever make it out of the local solar system. I think a big part of why people believe in space aliens is similar to why a lot of people believe the earth is flat. Humans are bad at projecting big numbers, deep time, extrapolating from our everyday lives to things that we don't have direct experience to. So it's hard to understand just how huge the earth is, for instance, to truly digest why you can't see the curve of the earth on a normal day. Now, let's let's not get into the places where you actually totally can see the curve of the earth for now. Um, I'm trying to be charitable and, and you know, uh, trying to really give people the benefit of the doubt here. And so similarly, it's hard for people to fathom the huge amount of time it takes with even more advanced non-science fiction-based transportation available to get to even our closest neighbors. So any of the technology we can think of as being non-science fiction-based, anything that we can think of at this moment that we would be able to do, none of that will get us to the nearest star in anything like a human life or even several human lives. And so we are becoming increasingly aware of all the conditions 
that had to come together just right to create life on earth as well. So again, this doesn't guarantee that any of the habitable planets and even the local group would harbor life. And there's an even smaller chance that it would have evolved a sentient race that is interested in exploration in a way that humans are, and that is currently living in some place that we could actually get to. Now, I love science fiction. I love dreaming about aliens and other worlds. I love watching old 50s movies with rubber-suited weird aliens. But that is science fiction. It's not based on any sort of actual probabilities within reality. Now, of course, there's also, when it comes down to it, the argument that if they do exist, we certainly don't want them coming here. Uh, For instance, Stephen Hawking famously reminded us how the people of the Americas were devastated by the equivalent of aliens landing on their shores. And while alien diseases almost certainly wouldn't affect us and there is a chance that they would be peaceful, uh... I don't really think that it's still a good idea. Um, You know, the only way that alien diseases could actually affect us would be if there is a physics-based requirement for DNA to be the basis of all life, but there's no reason to suspect that. And I also think of, for instance, the infamous uh, movies, for instance, uh, the one I just watched the other day, which is They Live, where the premise is that the aliens have used up the resources of their planet and have now ventured out into the galaxy to strip other worlds of their resources. Um, I also obviously always love to think of the uh, absolute epic uh, Twilight Zone episode, How to Serve Man. <laughs> <laughs> which if you have not watched it, you should definitely watch it. It is it is a great little episode. And so I also think about that every time someone suggests that the solution to our current problems on Earth is things like terraforming Mars rather than actually finding the will to fix the planet we already have. And so not to bring the mood down even more, but we're nowhere near to approaching the targets that we need to be at in order to not destroy the planet we're living on right now. Um, I was just reading the headline about that where they've done another assessment and everyone's like, oh, we're totally going to get to carbon neutral. And all of the things that they have suggested that they're going to do are not on track. And in case you don't, in case you need to be reminded, which I hope you don't, that Elon Musk still remains the most overrated mind in recent history, and he will not save us from our sins, no matter how many Twitter bros tell you differently. And so speaking of corporate technocrats, I want to do a bit of a soapbox detour, and I hope you don't mind, uh, before we move on to talk about other things. But I've seen uh, several headlines now, and I read, uh, you know, a morning news uh, newsletter, and 
there have been a, there's been a sudden rush for all of the large companies that went remote during the pandemic to suddenly start trying to demand that people return to work. Uh, I keep hearing at least three times a week because people supposedly work better when they're in shared spaces. Well, I am here to tell you that that research that research actually backs that up. Uh, despite people potentially being more individually productive when they have their own space and aren't, for instance, in a fishbowl, uh, co-working spaces, uh, don't get me started. Uh, the research does suggest that bumping into people, having, uh, you know, impromptu conversations or uh, just having in-person meetings versus on Zoom uh, meetings does lead to better collaboration and better overall outcomes. But I'm also here to tell you, and in a rare moment, that you shouldn't care one bit about this research. Do not give it more than a passing thought. I am suggesting that you should fight tooth and nail for your right. If you are privileged enough to have that right, and I am a hundred percent aware of the fact that this is a very privileged position, but you should fight to be hybrid or work from home and not be forced to go back into an office because quality of life should always trump productivity. Productivity is a, it is a creation of capitalism. Now, obviously, some things require continuous productivity. Some people have to go into jobs. You know, doctors can't work from home. Uh, <laughs> and so obviously producing the essentials for people to live, um, you know, continue to be needed. And um, obviously, we should do more to support the people who need to do that. Uh, but your tech or formerly in-office job is not going to crumble away because you take an hour to make lunch in the middle of the day in your own kitchen or because you take some time away from the computer to play with your kid or to take the dog for a walk. As long as you're getting things done that need to be done. If you take a few extra hours or don't come up with a cost-saving solution for the company because you don't end up in a boring, in-person, uh, potentially even actually uncomfortable staff meeting every week, that's okay. We need to stand firm on one of the few truly beneficial outcomes of the pandemic. People who work from home also do things like drive less and eat out less, which is good for the environment. Now, obviously that's bad for downtowns and we need to be able to have solutions for how we transition slash support people whose livelihoods kind of are depend on people going into a city center, for instance. But I don't think that that's a reason for us to start making people go back. It is ultimately good, again, for the planet and for people's mental health. And mental health has been such an issue. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's honestly been an issue forever, but we're finally starting to realize it. And so, you know, there are some people though who thrive on being around people while they're working and, you know, 
those people can get together in the office <laughs> and, and the rest of us can, uh, you know, stay home when we can. Um, obviously again, those who can afford to, and we should hold on to that fiercely and not let it be taken away by corporate greed. And so I, again, just want to emphasize that I completely understand that there is a vast array of people for whom working from home is a virtual pipe dream, but every win helps chip away at the overall edifice of corporate greed and exploitation. And so, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there because I keep reading all of this stuff and I read some of the studies and I was like, yeah, that's great, but I don't actually care. Um, <laughs> and I am fully willing to admit that hypocritical stance because I don't think that the end goal for humans should be maximum productivity uh, in the service of corporations who do not pay you enough uh, who do not share in the profits that you create in nearly as uh, robust a way as they should. And so therefore I say, ignore that research. Um, but yeah, um, <laughs> thank you for letting me have my soapbox moment. Not that you actually really had a uh, <laughs> choice, but it's just, it was driving me crazy, especially since some of the uh, most vociferous companies actually produce the software that allows people to work from home and for them to cry about lost productivity and demand people return to in-person work just makes me so angry. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break now and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we are going to uh, shift to something that is uh, much more uh, nice to talk about. And so we're going to talk about NASA for a minute and then we'll talk about some other stuff. So do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical courses off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we are going to shift and talk about NASA for a moment. And so NASA has announced the resurrection of a mission to visit a metal-rich asteroid. The Psyche uh, spacecraft project is back on track and is scheduled to launch in just four months. We believe Psyche is on a positive course for an October 2023 launch, said Thomas Young, who chaired an independent review board that NASA convened last summer after the mission was delayed. If successfully launched in October, the craft will rendezvous with the asteroid Psyche in August of 2029. It's scheduled to then orbit for 26 months while gathering data about planetary formation and helping us gain insight into the interiors of terrestrial planets that are otherwise not accessible. So we have, uh, you know, terrestrial planets have this metallic inner core that we just are never going to be able to access, uh, at least on Earth. And so, uh, being able to go to an asteroid that is, uh, almost certainly part of a failed, uh, terrestrial, uh, planet and to see what it's all about is going to give us information about, um, our inner core and other planets, uh, composition. Now, one small downside is that it may also contribute data to the forming, uh, notion of mining asteroids. And so while there may be valuable and rare minerals to be found on asteroids, I do not trust our current civilization to be able to mine them ethically. Um, or frankly, safely in some respects. Uh, and given the rise of, uh, 
private space fair uh, companies, I think the idea of allowing people to mine in space just oh, so many uh, sci-fi novels that I've read. I mean, this is this is where sci-fi comes in. So many not uh, sci-fi novels about the dangers of commercial space mining. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. But anyways, Psyche's mission was derailed by a lack of resources and staff at JPL. Now, they were working on several projects at the time, uh, including perseverance and ingenuity, and also dealing with the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, yeah, apparently it was a bit of a disaster. And so this uh, report detailed the failings of the effort uh, by the independent panel. And so since then, NASA and JPL were able to regroup, get the project back on task. They added experienced team members, reorganized much of the team working on the project and developed better metrics to track progress and mission readiness. And so NASA and JPL are hoping that things are back on track. Um, the new head of JPL, uh, Laurie Leshin, came in just after the report uh, by the independent review was uh, presented. And so uh, JPL, under her um, guidance, has worked to hire uh, as well as to even lure back former employees from the private space and also from tech industries. And so they're really trying to rebuild their bench. And so in addition to getting Psyche back on track, JPL, it's striving to win back its reputation by successfully launching the Europa Clipper mission next year and restarting the Veritas mission to Venus. And so, yeah, um, this is one of those things where it pains me to, to read about that sort of thing because I think of all of the people who are constantly yelling about NASA budgets and to hear about, you know, them having issues is just like, oh, it's such fuel for the people who are saying that NASA is wasteful and we shouldn't be paying for it. Of course, most of those people believe that because they believe that space is fake. <laughs> but still, um, yeah, that's that's oof. again, um, we we could talk for hours about conspiracy theories and I'd rather not. Um I don't think it's productive. So yeah, um, but coming back to Earth, uh, obviously one of the goals of the Psyche mission is to learn more about the metallic cores of terrestrial planets, again, which are largely inaccessible, uh, mostly because, for instance, uh, the actual inner core of the planet, uh, our planet at least, is molten <laughs> metal, which, you know, not really uh, user-friendly as far as doing any kind of testing on um, because it would basically destroy anything that you tried to put into it uh, to probe it, but also just the technological deficiencies of being able to drill down that far. Um, because again, the earth is very, very big. It is very big. It is 
ridiculously hard to fathom how big it is and it's small compared to other objects in the universe like our sun is a pipsqueak compared to many other stars like it's the 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 vastness of the universe is truly mind-boggling like you just it's it's just impossible to really fathom it but um a kilometer's worth of rock core has just been removed from an underwater mountain in the Atlantic Ocean, giving scientists a sneak peek at some of the Earth's inner layers. Now, of course, this is just uh, potentially uh, material from the upper mantle, which is no, nowhere near the metallic core, because again, Earth, huge the mantle is very thick, um, but still, it's very impressive and exciting. And so the core is more than 3,280 feet long and consists of serpentint- serpentinite rocks. And the core comes from the Atlantis Massif, which is located on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Shout out to Maria Tharp. Um, <laughs> whenever, mention, whenever you mention the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. The team drilled a hole 4,156 feet deep into the mountain to extract a quote-unquote staggering amount of the metamorphic rock that forms at tectonic plate boundaries like the Mid-Atlantic Ridge deep in the Earth's interior. Now, this isn't the deepest bore ever made into the seabed, and it didn't actually hit the mantle per se. Rather, they exploited the fact that the Atlantis Massif has a quote-unquote tectonic window, which is apparently a region where a chunk of mantle rock has been uplifted to be able to extract the material without having to drill deeper into the Earth's interior, which uh, comes with additional risks and massive amounts of failure, in fact. Uh, So, yeah. On Earth, mantle rock is normally extremely difficult to access, the geologist wrote in a blog post. The Atlantis Massif offers a rare advantage to gain access to it, and as it is composed of mantle rocks that have been brought up closer to the surface through the process of ultra-slow C4 spreading, um, it's very exciting. Attempts to reach the mantle beneath the seafloor have been ongoing since 1961, when geologists created Project Mohole and attempted to drill beneath the Pacific Ocean to reach the Mohorovicic. Oh, come on. Mohorovicic discontinuity or Moho. (laughs) Oh, I tried really hard. I'm so sorry. Uh, The boundary, this is the boundary between the crust and the mantle, which is named after the Croatian seismologist. I I apologize to all Croatians. Uh, Andrea Mohorovicic. And so he discovered the boundary by using seismic waves in much the same way we use x-rays to look inside the human body. He found that seismic waves traveled at two different speeds, depending on how deep or shallow they were. This suggested to him that there were two distinct layers of rock. And thus, he discovered the fact that there was a change between crust and mantle. 
Now, the first drilling attempts back in 61 only reached 601 feet before failing. Um, and they just, they, they just had to give up. Now, many other attempts have also failed, which forced geologists to depend on studying the mantle by examining chunks of it that were ejected from volcanoes. Uh, but these samples are basically changed by the act of rising through and being ejected by the volcano. They get weathered, they get um, chemically changed, and so they are approximations at best. And so studying the mantle can give us clues to the secrets of volcanoes and the Earth's magnetic field. And so it's really important to learn more about it. The current team were members of the International Ocean Discovery Program aboard the Joides Revolution, Resolution, a scientific drilling vessel. And actually, they weren't even looking specifically for mantle rock for the sake of mantle rock. Rather, the team is searching for the origins of life on Earth and was hunting for olivine contained in the Atlantis Massif. But when olivine reacts with water, it produces hydrogen, which is then eaten by microbial life. But that, that process of olivine reacting with hydrogen is a process called serpentinization. And so the team is actually looking at, uh, they want to learn more about how small organic molecules might have formed before the advent of actual life via interactions between the rock and seawater. This could be a way that you go from just having basically water and rock, said Susan Lang, the co-chief scientist of the expedition and a scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, that produces hydrogen. That hydrogen is a really big fuel to things like the formation of smaller organic molecules. And that can then combine with other organic molecules and lead to early life. Now, most of the core consists of paradidite, tight, which comprises mainly olivine and pyroxene and is the most common form of rock found in the upper mantle. There is some suggestion of alteration by seawater, which could mean that it's actually from the upper crust and not the mantle, but the researchers are continuing to drill in order to confirm whether or not the material is indeed from the mantle. If it is from the mantle, and frankly, even if it isn't, this will still be a huge cache of data to be examined for years to come. The magnitude of the history occurring has most certainly not been lost on our science party, many of whom are seasoned field researchers and believe this will be incredibly important data for many generations of scientists to come, the geologist wrote in the blog post. Now, the drilling began on May 1st and was basically, obviously, a stunning success. The previous record for drilling in Mantle Rock was only a tenth of a mile. But this time, the drill continued to dive deeper and deeper, and the team was able to retrieve lots of almost complete tubes of rock. So sometimes, even if you are getting further down, 
you get basically blank spaces. So a lot of the tubes end up coming up with just a little bit of rock. But this seems to have been an almost solid all the way through bore. And so they're just getting large, large amounts of actual rock. Andrew McCaig, the expedition's co-chief scientist, noted in an interview while they were drilling, it just kept going deeper, deeper and deeper. Then everyone in the science party said, hey, this is what we all, this is what we wanted all along. Since 1960, we wanted to get a hole this deep in mantle rock. So um, they finished this version of the drilling on June 2nd. And, uh, you know, I think they're going to take time now to examine what has thus far been extracted. And it's also a fitting discovery for the Joids resolution, uh, which is actually scheduled for retirement in 2024. Now, while drilling, the team didn't really have a lot of time to contemplate the scope of the find. And the fact that the sample has been altered by water, as noted, means it's not a clear-cut sample of mantle, but rather has properties of both the lower crust and upper mantle. But it turns out this may be a uh, feature, not a bug. It may be that the boundary between the two isn't as clear as one might hope it to be. It's a bit of a hash, but that's maybe what the lower crust is, said Andrew Fisher, a hydrogeologist at the University of California at Santa Cruz, who has a grad student working on the ship. And he then proceeded to list several types of rocks found and recorded during the drilling. This is really unusual. More than a kilometer of highly altered lower crustal and or upper, upper mantle rock. I'd say it's a mix. Now, obviously, they hope to be able to go deeper and find a rock that is less altered and thus become closer to finding true mantle rock, which would be really exciting to be able to bring up and do research on. Okay, let's circle back now to UFOs. Now, this time, though, we're going to be talking about actual biology. Scientists studying unusual floral organ, or UFO protein, have long known that the protein did more than just one job, and now they know how it's able to perform more than one job within plants. Now, the structure of the protein suggests that it is meant to target proteins for destruction, but it also works with the leafy protein, LFY, to aid in flower formation. The LFY protein does the bulk of the work in creating flowers. This protein, along with occasionally other proteins, is responsible for building pretty much the entire flower, the sepals, the petals, the stamens, and carpels arranged in whorls to create the flower. The UFO protein combines with the leafy to help form petals and stamens. Francois Parsi of CNRS at the University of Grenoble Alps, also the study's lead author, notes that it took 25 years to figure out this UFO 
leafy mechanism because of, quote, the misleading nature of the UFO protein. And so UFO is one of around 700 proteins characterized by a pattern of amino acids called an F-box domain. And these regulate the levels of other proteins. UFO marks other proteins for destruction, according to Parsi. It puts a chemical marker on a protein selected for degradation. As soon as a protein is marked, cell machinery called proteasome recognizes the mark and chops the protein into hundreds of pieces. Thus, he explains, normally it should degrade the LFI protein too. However, in the case of LFI, we find that the UFO has a completely different function, that of binding to a region of the DNA that cannot be accessed by the LFI alone. When combined, they stick to DNA near genes required for petal and stamen formation. The team began the work four years ago and worked on synthesizing the UF protein in insect cells. It was quite challenging as the UFO is one of the most difficult proteins to produce artificially, Parsi remarked. And so the UFO, it turns out, is doing something quite different when it combines with Leafy. We then modified it by removing the F-box domain responsible for triggering the degradation of partner proteins. To our surprise, we found that despite removing its main assumed function, the protein still worked fine with the leafy protein, Parsi said. It turns out that the UFO protein actually changes the DNA sequences that leafy sticks to. The researchers were able to observe the interactions by using cryo-electron microscopy to image the 3D structure of the interactions of the two proteins and the DNA regions. Neither protein can stick to these sections alone, only when combined. It means that while each protein has the capacity to weakly touch the DNA region, when combined, it adds to their strength, resulting in an interaction with a new DNA motif, he said. Now, this mechanism is at work in all flowering plants and is also, in fact, used by rice plants to develop the panicles, which are the sort of um, the part that holds the grains of rice in. As for why the protein still carries the F-box domain that is not used for this essential function, Parsi isn't sure yet why that is. If this domain was totally useless, it would have been removed by evolution. The fact that it is still present means it has a role which remains to be discovered. Perhaps the UFO has a role in degrading other proteins. We don't know yet. But what we can say for sure is that to make petals and stamen, this function is not needed. But this finding might actually hint at the origin of flowers, which is, again, still not uh, very well understood because, again, lots of things we don't know about the natural world. (laughs) 
Our study hints that this co-opting mechanism was already present in gynosperms, such as conifers, as well as in ferns. It must have had another role when there were no flowers, he said. And the UFO protein is not the only one that does double duty with its cells. Because nature is really good at recycling and using what we already have to solve new problems and create new solutions. So um, that's one of the big things about evolution. And in some respects, um, you know, when you're at the protein level, you're actually working in a level at the, you know, chemical interactions and uh, reactions based on uh, the laws of physics and quantum uh, solutions and things like that. And so there might just be ways in which there's kind of prescribed um, combinations that are able to be used. And so that's just how it works out that you're able to uh, basically have uh, Swiss army knife proteins so yeah, it's really interesting and I think it's really awesome that they were able to figure this out after 25 years of uh, work. That is super exciting. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. Um, remember, UFOs are still almost certainly not a thing unless they're in flowering plants. So uh, yeah, have a good night. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widget by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.